Ephesians chapter number 5, Ephesians chapter number 5 this morning as we turn to a new chapter in our study of the book of Ephesians and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 and our subject this morning will be as Christ also hath loved us, as Christ also hath loved us. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Paul says we are to be followers or we might say imitators of God. One of those ways that we imitate God is to walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. Sometimes chapter divisions are unfortunate. Certainly not attempting to correct the Bible, but let's do remember that chapter divisions were put in by man uh, they, are, they were added to divide thoughts. They were added to help us categorize certain things. But we cannot separate, especially verses 1 and 2, from chapter number 4. We understand that just by the stating of the phrase, Be ye therefore. Paul is connecting those first words of chapter 5 to the end thoughts that we looked at, especially verses 31 and 32 when we dealt with, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Paul deals in the end of that chapter and this chapter with two aspects of God. Christ's forgiveness and Christ's love for us. Both of those things ought to shape our walk for God. Christ's forgiveness of us and Christ's love for us ought to shape our walk with God. That's what leads Paul to make that statement. Walk in love. Paul continues in chapter 5 to declare doctrinal truth that is to be practically applied. It's practically applied by giving a life or giving evidence of a life that gives this evidence that we truly have been forgiven in Christ and we have truly been loved by Christ. Now before we really expound these two verses, I want us to really look at two main teachings that I believe Paul is showing us here. We understand clearly that there's a lot of input by the Apostle Paul of how we should live. Uh, sometimes people come to church with the idea of, I come to church because I want to know how to live. Some people come to church because they say, I want to know how I can make my life better. Uh, some people come to church because they're uh, looking for something to fill a void in their life. They don't really know why they come to church. It's just something that maybe they've always done. But how are we supposed to discern the right way? How are we supposed to discern what is the right way to walk? If I was to just tell you today, walk in love, Lord bless you as you go, all of us might have a different idea of what walking in love is, and we might even have a different idea of how that's to be evidenced. But what Paul is explaining from Scripture is really how believers are supposed to live. Now, let me just say, we should not expect an unbelieving world to live this way. 
We shouldn't expect an unbelieving world to walk in love. Paul is talking very specifically to those who know the forgiveness of Christ and those who know the love of Christ. It is not accurate to say that the entire world knows about the forgiveness of Christ and they know about the love of Christ. That certainly would not be a true statement. We know about Christ's love and we know about Christ's forgiveness because we're in Him. That is a key thought. So what is Christianity? Uh, Christianity defined is often given many definitions. Sadly, many of them are wrong. Many people think Christianity is a moral code. It's a code of conduct, if you will. I live a certain way because I'm a Christian. That's not what Paul has in mind. I'm not telling you we shouldn't have a moral code. I'm not telling you we shouldn't have a code of conduct, but that's not the reason we walk in love. Believers are not just to simply obey because we're Christian. I've heard people say often they're challenged about something in this world and they say, why do you believe that way? And they say something like this because that's the Christian thing to do. That's not a Bible answer. The Bible answer is not that's a Christian thing to do. There's more to it than just what the Christian thing to do is. Rather, we are to walk in love and obedience because we know what Christ has done for us. He's forgiven us of our sins and because He loves us. Now, certainly there are things in Scripture the Bible tells us we are to avoid. We are to abstain from. We, Paul uses terminology in the book of Colossians about mortifying the flesh. We are to kill, we're to kill the flesh towards the things of sin. But understand something, that the Lord in His grace did not leave us without reasons for obedience. Instead, He tells us in Scripture by His mercy why things are better when we follow Him. I have never regretted following Christ. And it's not always been easy, but I've never regretted it. I've never looked at my life and said, you know what, Jesus Christ is too hard to follow. Because we must think on His forgiveness of our sins and we must think on His love for us. He didn't have to forgive us and He didn't have to love us. He was not obligated to forgive you and He was not obligated to love you. And yet He did. So I should delight, as the psalmist wrote in our call to worship, I should delight to do thy will, O God. Not just because it's the Christian thing to do. We don't do things a certain way because we're Christian. We do them because we want to obey the Scriptures that says walk in love. So instead, Paul reminds us, he doesn't use this terminology as clearly as he does in some places, but he says, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Just as children are representatives of their families, we are representatives of God as his children. People should be able to discern by our walk, by our conduct, by our compassion, that we are indeed children of our Father. Not as much our earthly Father as our heavenly Father. It's interesting, if you watch families, oftentimes if you sit back long enough, and I've loved doing this with our church, especially over the past few months when we've had new families and new children come in, it's been, it has been thrilling for me to stand back and watch some of your children and see some of the characteristics of you in them and watching how they respond and watching how they do things and say, you know what, I can see how that child belongs to that set of parents. And and most times, we as parents don't even realize that our kids are doing that. And sometimes, 
not to only get too far off base here, but sometimes we see them do something and they say, where did you learn that? Well, that's exactly what you do. <laughs> they, they, they are following your example. They're imitating you. Paul has a very practical thing in mind here. Can somebody let Mark in, please? Somebody's got this, got this very practical idea that we ought to be imitators. Paul is not using a large doctrinal phrase here. He uses a simple, be ye therefore followers of God. And everybody relates to dear children. People should be able to look at us and see the Father in us because we are striving to become like Him in the same way that children imitate their earthly parents. That's really the key teaching, number one, I think Paul has in mind here. Number two, I think this is really important, and this was eye-opening to me this week because I never really looked at this passage from this perspective. But notice Paul makes mention here of Christ loving us and giving himself for us and offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, rightfully so, we think about this passage and we immediately think about the atoning death of Christ on the cross, as well we should. However, Paul has in mind here, more closely related to our day-to-day conduct, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You see, the atoning sacrifice of Christ is not just for our spiritual good, our eternal good, but it's supposed to be for our earthly good. It's one of the motivating factors as to why we live the way we do. We talk a lot at this church about Christ's sacrifice. We make much about Christ. We we probably hear the phrase, in Christ alone, every single time we're together. We sing about our salvation in Christ. And it's often that's the only way we mention it. But is it possible that Paul was even thinking more than just our eternal benefit, how that it's supposed to affect our walk in this life? I think it's very clear the thoughts are connected. Be a follower of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. He connects the atoning sacrifice of Christ to our day-to-day walk. It should impact the rest of our lives. How I live my life for the Lord should be lived with the forgiveness of Christ in my mind, but also His atoning death. How does Christ's atonement apply to the life of a believer even after they're saved? It's interesting that when you study through the Bible, the Bible's never satisfied with just a general statement about the love of God. It's really quite fascinating. When the love of God is mentioned throughout Scripture, it's not done in a generalized way. It's very specific as to how the love of God should influence or impact something else. So it's not just a verse that says, oh, the love of God is great. I was going to say something and I'll leave it there. So it's not a general statement. It's a specific statement about the love of God and how the love of God's been demonstrated and how it should affect our lives. So God's love is specific in the Bible because the specific act of God demonstrate His love. In other words, what's happening is God's love is demonstrated by these things. So if God's love is mentioned, here's how the love of God is demonstrated by either through Christ, through the Spirit, or through the Father. A man's conduct, how we walk, is determined by our doctrine. We've learned that. 
What you believe about God will show more evidence in how you walk, not in what you know. I know people who can run circles around me theologically. I know there are. There are people that could, if I got into a debate with you, you'd probably beat me. You have better debate techniques. You could probably pin me. In a, I mean, I, I would admit that. But I'm not so impressed with all the doctrine you know if your doctrine doesn't translate down to your application how you actually live your life. That's just doctrine. Now, my doctrine ought to dictate my walk. So when Paul says walk in love, he's writing to people who know about the forgiveness of Christ, the people who know about the love of Christ, and he's reminding them, now walk according to those principles. Walk according to Christ's forgiveness and walk according to Christ's love for you. He's not giving them a rule of standards. He's not, he's not putting up a PowerPoint presentation saying, now here's all the things I want you to do to walk in love this week. If you think upon the love of Christ and you think about His forgiveness, folks, it's going to affect the way you walk. It's impossible for it not to. If you wake up in the morning with the first thing on your mind, how Christ forgave you for your sins and how Christ loved you and how His Christ loved for you, it's going to determine a lot as far as how the rest of that day goes. But if you're like me, and I'm guilty of this as any, I get up with every burden on my mind. I get up with everything I have to do and every thought process. And all those thoughts are usually anti-God. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm going to face and walk today upon your forgiveness through Christ and the love of Christ. This seems so practical. You almost have to stand back and say, is Paul really being that simple? Well, you study the scriptures. Oftentimes we make the Bible more difficult than it was ever intended to be. There's not some hidden code in this where you're supposed to find the hidden codes. You're supposed to read the Word. You're supposed to study to show yourself approved. These ideas that Paul was writing about, the only thing I can compare this to in our society, when we talk about a man's conduct and how it's associated with his doctrine, it's familiar with a familiar phrase we hear in society. As a man thinks, so, he, so is he. What a man thinks about, that's what he does. What, what that man's obsessed with is often what he lives the most for. But what do we get in Christ's atonement? In Christ's atonement, we gain a clear example of the love of God. If someone says, describe to me the love of God, I point them to Christ. If you want to see what the love of God really is, I point to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's what the love of God clearly demonstrated is. So Paul points out, that the very measure to which we understand Christ's love will be the very equivalent to how we meet it out or give to other people. How we love people is based upon our acknowledgement of Christ's love for us. Do we love with an expectation of always getting something back? Do we love with an idea that I'm doing this to gain some kind of a reward, some kind of a point? Or am I doing this out of the free grace that Jesus that saved me, I'm loving you through that same free and sovereign grace that was, so, that was given to this unworthy wretch. Because remember, you're forgive, Christ's forgiveness and His love towards you was demonstrated towards an unworthy wretch who could give Him nothing of value in return. I offer God nothing of value. Of value. Even in the gospel message, we make a grand mistake when we say that He loved me so much He did this. If we're not careful, we think that we are something lovable in us. 
He didn't redeem you because you were lovable. He redeemed you for his glory. He saved you for his glory. Not even first and foremost for your soul. Salvation is about the glory of God before it's about the eternal salvation of a soul. If we make the mistake of saying, well, the the whole gospel is just about Jesus keeping sinners out of hell. You're missing what's really going on behind the scenes. Because none of those two things we have can claim any right to. I have nothing that says he should have forgiven me. And I have nothing to offer that says he should have loved me. Yet he did. Even though I couldn't offer anything in return. So Paul exhorts these believers to love others as Christ has loved us. Christ loves us so completely that it can't be added to and it can't be taken away from. He can't love you more and he can't love you less. I say that, it's becoming even cliched often. You you cannot do anything else to make him love you more. And you cannot make him love you less. But he also loves you conditionally, unconditionally, unconditionally. He forgives unconditionally. He loves unconditionally. When we fall back into acting like that depraved wretch that we were before Christ saved us, He still loves us. And by the way, we're all going to fall back into that depravity. Your depravity is going to rise its ugly head back up and it's going to happen more than once. And you're going to have a hard time believing that it's actually coming from you. How can someone who's been forgiven by Christ and been loved by Christ act and think and do the things I'm doing that's so contrary to walking in love? What's going to happen if it hasn't, you're just not paying attention. There are times we are downright ornery, right? And downright anti-God everything. We are just, we're living for ourselves. We're selfish. We're pride-filled. We want what we want. We don't care what anybody thinks. That's just that old man rising back up. Often somebody will say, well, that steps on my toes. It's stepping on everybody's toes. Because if that didn't just step on your toes, you're not paying attention. Because we're all guilty of this. And yet, his death on our behalf has massive implications of how we live after we're saved. If we truly understand what Christ has done for us, we're going to want to share in that love in word and in deeds. That's a long introduction to two key teachings. The exposition won't take quite as long, but I want you to look at this even more closely. Be ye therefore followers of God as his dear children. Same principle, that first key teaching, is to be followed out and enforced with the consideration that children should be like their father. Now every father here knows, and they're in this room knows, they're not perfect fathers. Every father, humanly speaking, looks back on their life as a father and says, I coulda, woulda, shoulda, shoulda done better, shoulda been this. But what Paul's reminding them of is not of their earthly fatherhood, but he's reminding them of their heavenly father that they should reflect the image, be an imitator of their heavenly father. Paul reminds us of these simple things that we are the children of God and we ought therefore as much as possible to resemble him in our actions. What kind of actions? Remember I told you the chapter divisions are sometimes unfortunate. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's part of it. Verse 32, chapter 4, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's illustrations of how we're to resemble our Heavenly Father. God is not a God of bitterness. He's not a God of, of wrath in the sense that we are. He's not a God of anger and clamor and evil speaking. And He's kind to us. Do you know how kind God has been to you? And tender-hearted. And forgiving you. Forgiving one another. Why? As God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So we resemble Him in acts of kindness. These, again, these division of chapters... It's, it's very unfortunate because our minds shut off to what we just read. These subjects are directly related. If we are the children of God, application, if we're the children of God, we ought to be followers of God. Christ declares that unless we show kindness to those who are unworthy, there's no way we can be children of our Heavenly Father. This kindness is one of the simplest things that Christians should do. I challenged the fifth and sixth graders last week just to be kind. <laughs> kindness is becoming a commodity. Simple acts of kindness. Sometimes we forget how to be, just be simply kind to people. Well, I can't be kind to them because they're not worthy of my kindness. You're not worthy of Christ's kindness. You are not worthy of it. He didn't do it because you're worthy of it. I love what Jesus says as part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.44 as part of the correction of the Pharisees. We're studying through Matthew on Wednesday evenings. We haven't quite gotten here yet, but Matthew 5.44, Jesus correcting the Pharisees and the scribes' false teaching about how things should be. He says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now think about what Jesus was telling them. I want you to love people who want to see you destroyed. I want you to bless people who are cursing you with all, all words. I want you to do good to people that hate you. And then I want you to do the unthinkable. I want you to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Now he doesn't just say do it without giving them a reason. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Remember I said about stepping on the toes? There it is. How in the world do we love enemies, bless people that curse us, do good to those that hate us, and then do the unthinkable and pray for people who are using us and persecuting us? Why do we do that? Because it's the Christian thing to do? No, because we're told that we're walking in love as our Father has sent Jesus Christ to forgive us and love us. We walk that way. Folks, can I tell you, it's easy to match unkindness for unkindness. It's easy. It's easy to just engage in a back and forth of hatred and malice and clamor. And bitter. It's the easiest thing you do. Matter of fact, it's the first thing we often think about. 
Oh yeah, you wronged me, watch this. You threw a grenade, I'm throwing a missile. Watch this, I'm firing a missile at you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do to you double what you did to me just to be sure you know I'm here. That's that old man rising up. And instead, we're told to be kind. Love enemies? The world has no concept. No concept of how to love an enemy. The world's perspective is an enemy, you blow them up. An enemy, you just take them out. An enemy, you just do away with him. Jesus said, I say unto you the exact opposite. I'm finding our study on Wednesday evening absolutely fascinating when we see Jesus use that phraseology, but I say unto you, often correcting what we think is right. So be ye therefore followers of God. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. Again, expounding a little bit more. Paul's called us to imitate God. Now he calls on us to imitate Christ. Walking in love is not just imitating God in general. That's the idea of, I just walk in Christian principles. No, we are specifically called to imitate Christ. Christ is the true pattern of what we're to follow. We ought to embrace one another with the idea and the concept and the principles of the same love that Christ has embraced us with. What we see in Christ is what Paul wants us to model after. Not just a general idea, and I understand where this concept came from, but often people just focus on the servanthood of Christ. And they focus on, well, you know, you ought to wash people's feet and you ought to do this and you ought to do that. I get it. I understand the service mentality. But do you realize that a call to follow Christ first and foremost is a call to love people before it's a call to serve people? First and foremost, you're called to love them before you're called to serve them. Let me get that backward. They just say, listen, if I just serve people, I'm doing the Christian thing. I'm doing the Christ-like thing. No, the Christ-like thing is to love them as Christ loved you. That's a whole lot harder. I can give you a list of service opportunities you can do, and you can serve people and not love them one iota. And you go home with your, your little list of all the good things you did today, but did you love people? See, Paul knew exactly where to put things. I mean, this, Paul's not given this, this smorgasbord Christianity that says, I'm just going to pick certain aspects of the Christian life and I'm just going to live this way because it's a Christian thing to do and I'm going to do this because it seems Christ-like. He says, no, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. It's kind of what we're going to talk about when we get further in Ephesians 5, when he's going to make the startling statement that he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ also loved the church. Buckles the knees, folks. Buckles the knees. If you're truly understanding what Christ is, what Paul's trying to say, how Christ loved the church, husbands love your wives that way, buckles the knees because you're like, what in the world am I supposed to do? And again, it's... A frightening proposition to think that any of us would say, well, I love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm a little frightened of you. Because you're talking about something I think it's going to take a lifetime if we even get close to it. Now again, Paul's not talking, and that's what's going to help us when we get to Ephesians 5 further on. 
He's not saying this, you can do this perfectly. He's not even saying it's possible for you to actually love people like I've loved you, but you ought to do everything you can to be an imitator of that love. See, people get scripture and they get so laser focused that they think he's asking for perfection. He's asking for perfection. He wouldn't ask of you something you can't give. You can't give perfection. You can't love people exactly like Christ loved you. But you ought to imitate it. You ought to look at those things and say, I want to try to love that way. Part of love, the biggest part of love, is always about what's given. He says, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. That's the remarkable proof of the highest love is what's given. What did Christ give? Well, we often forget that the highest demonstration of the proof of Christ's love for us was the giving of himself. He spared not his own life that he might redeem us from death. If we even want to be a partial imitator of who Christ is, we have to think on the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Folks, I have to look out at a world and I have to look at every single person and I have to say, I am to love that person. I'm to love them. I'm to try to point them to Christ. I'm not to look at anyone and say, listen, they're not worthy of Christ's love. They're not worthy of Christ's forgiveness. If I'm on this high, holy horse of mine and saying, listen, I, I tell you, I'm the, I am the picture of what a Christ-centered Christian ought to be. Shame on you. Shame on me. To look at anyone else and say they don't deserve the forgiveness and the love of Christ. That's not for you and I to decide. You have never been given the ability to determine who is worthy and who isn't worthy because we're not worthy recipients of either one. So why would I think I can dictate who deserves Christ's mercy? Who deserves? When I say a, a, a murderer doesn't deserve Christ's love, what are you going to tell the Apostle Paul? What are you going to tell him? He knew Christ's love and he was a murderer. What are you going to tell Moses? I believe the Bible talks about Moses killing a man. It's a good thing it's not dependent upon that because we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? Yet what are we, what are we to do? We're to be imitators. Not that any of us have reached that level of perfection, but that we strive and we press toward the mark. We aim at that. We aim at loving people in a way that seems impossible. Now notice Paul doesn't just say it hath given himself for us, but he also he, he, he expresses this in a beautiful way. He says, has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, you and I admire Christ's love for us when it talks about us, right? I do. Christ loved me. Christ gave himself for me. But notice again what Paul says. He hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. You were not the ultimate object of what was being given. The Father was. 
in order that you might have acceptance with the Father, you needed Christ and the gift that He gave. It bears directly upon our admiration of the grace of Christ. But folks, we can never, there is no illustration, there's no explanation that you can give me. And I don't care who the theologian is, I don't care who the pastor is, there is not a single person, humanly speaking, who can fully represent the consequences and the efficacy of the death of Christ. You, you cannot, in human terms, fully explain what was actually happening. But that that had to be an offering and a sacrifice to God, to get this, contrary, that was a sweet-smelling savor. Christ's death, the Father's pleasure at bruising the Son, crushing the Son, was a sweet-smelling savor to God. Every father in this room, every mother in this room, can you even imagine your child being given and crushed and experiencing the full wrath of God? Would you willingly give them over to that? This is something that's almost unexplainable. When Paul uses these terminologies, I realize he's, he's, he's moving, the, especially the Jews, who would have had a great understanding of the, the, of the offerings of incense that were altered upon the altars, all those Jewish altars, and the incense that would go up that was to remind them of God's care for them. Paul is using very descriptive language here. This doctrine of reconciliation, the only price that God the Father would accept to reconcile sinners to Himself was the payment that was made by Christ. The only price that could be paid. Now think about this for a moment. This doctrine of faith, we talked about this in the 10 o'clock, the faith in which we, we stand upon, our justification by faith. Isn't it extraordinary to think about that with all of this being done, we experience and understand the kindness of our Redeemer. The hymns that we sing remind us of his kindness. But they also don't ignore the wrath that would come upon us had it not been for his kindness, for his long suffering, for his mercy. There is this here's my love, here's my forgiveness, and here is what's on the other side. If number one, my payment isn't accepted, or I don't give it to you. I think we sing those hymns. As the old, as the sinners in the hands of an angry God preached by Jonathan Edwards said he had people in such fear of the reverence and the wrath of God that people were holding onto the pews in front of them because they were afraid they were going to fall into hell. And that man stood up, had his manuscript in front of him, and he read it in a monotone voice, did not change his inflection. He just read, and he read about who God is. He read about their responsibility before God. He read about all the things that they could not do that would not be accepted. And literally, the people that were there have written accounts that people were literally holding onto the pews in front of them, saying, I'm doing everything I can to keep myself from falling into hell. 
And then the kindness of Christ appears. And suddenly you're left saying, what did I do to be kept from the pit of hell? What did I do to deserve the forgiveness of sins? Oh, I did a couple Christ-like things. I did a couple Christian activities. I thought like a Christian. I had a good moral code. Absolutely not. None of those things are keeping you out of hell. Nothing in the world that says this is the Christian way to do it. That's not what this is, that's not what this is dependent upon. It's dependent upon the reality that the doctrine of the kindness of Christ and the love that He has for His people, the more strongly we understand that, the more likely we are to love other people that way. You know, and pardon what I'm getting ready to say, because I'm saying this in the proper context, but the absolutely most merciless, most unloving thing you can say to a person is to tell them to go to hell. Now that's strong language, and I'm saying that because we use that as if that's just something flippant. The world talks about hell as if it's no big deal. It's more than a big deal. Paul says we're going we're to love one another. And understanding that all that we do is not acceptable in the sight of God based upon what we do, but it's only based upon what Jesus Christ has done. The only reason I'm invited to come boldly before the throne of grace in a time of need is because Christ has already offered himself as a sweet-smelling savor. I could bring my very best today. I could be dressed my very best. I could, I could use my church language today. And it wouldn't be enough. I could say a prayer. I could do a lot of things. I could, I, could, I could pray. But without Christ and His forgiveness and His love, I cannot stand before a perfectly righteous and holy God. If the reconciliation of man was affected by man, it would not be a sweet-smelling savor. It'd be rotten. Paul, describes, Paul even describes as our works as something that just belongs on the dunghill. It just belongs on the trash heap. I know Isaiah is the one that gets quoted about all of our righteousness and filthy rags. Paul talks a lot about it. But if our reconciliation to God is affected by Christ, it is always a sacrifice of sweet-smelling savor. And we too are supposed to reflect that sweet-smelling savor. Paul actually talks about this specifically in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 15. And again, Paul is giving this, this beautiful description of the savor. He compares life and death. And it's really quite spiritually profound what he mentions. He's applying to the believer this idea of this sweet-smelling fragrance, this savor, this perfume that actually becomes a part of who we are. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Paul writes, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence unto Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. 
For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. You see, Paul says that very sweet-smelling fragrance, it is a sweet savor to those that are saved, but to those who aren't, it's the savor of death. For we are unto God, a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Paul really in 2 Corinthians gives us a picture of what it looks like to actually walk in love. There's a connection between this sweet-smelling savor that we are in Christ and that how we live in Christ with that ever before us. As Christ also hath loved us, Paul says. This love that is exceedingly great, exceedingly strong, is also a love and a forgiveness that is inconceivable, and it's unmatched. No one, humanly speaking, can love you as Christ has loved you. I know, and I, our human relationships are a precious gift, and I know they're complicated. I know they can be really difficult. Sometimes the people you love the most, you have the hardest time <laughs> getting along with. And we know what love is. We know how we love our children, we love our spouses, we love one another, but understand something, we can never fully love the way that Christ loves us. It's it's unmatched. We can't match it. But think about this. (laughs) You want to deepen our theology today. As much as Christ loves us, the Father loved Christ more. I mean, you think about this. You think about the love of the Father for the Son, and the Son loved us. Yet the Father demonstrated His love by sending His Son to die in the place of unworthy recipients. The Father loved Christ with a love that was also the same way that Christ loves us. It's free, it's sovereign, it's unchangeable, it's everlasting. When God the Father was pouring out His wrath on His Son on the cross, He didn't love the Son any less. But it's got to be mentioned as we bring this to a close. We should should not leave here today with the idea that although we should be imitators of God, imitators of Christ, we'll never be able to love each other with a love that's equal to Christ's love for us, but that it should bear likeness to it. Those who are in Christ walk in love towards one another. That's the design of what Paul is saying. Walking in love is evidence of justification. It's evidence of conversion. It's evidence of regeneration. And without walking in love, it's just a profession of faith. Can I tell you, so many people today are relying on their profession of faith as evidence of their regeneration. What you say is important, but actually do you walk? Paul doesn't say, as Christ hath loved you, make a profession of faith. He says, walk in love. Folks, there's there's a big emphasis being played on people's testimonies today, and I understand it. Again, you you folks that know me, I 
I, I, I love sports. I love sports in their proper place. Sometimes I get too carried away with it. I'm working on that. But just because an athlete stands up and says, I want to thank God for this, doesn't make them a Christian. Doesn't make them a believer. Doesn't make them walking in love. Paul's not saying, hey, just go around and tell everybody what you are. He's actually saying action, walk. Walk is your total conduct. It's your conversation and what you do. And he says, walk in love. The profession of faith is just the first step. Yes, I make a profession of faith, but if my profession does not have any evidence, am I really in the faith? The Bible talks about fruits of the Spirit. Paul's telling them that you're going to walk in love, you're going to walk as an imitator of God. Walking in love is not just merely talking about God's love. It's not just simply meditating on God's love. It's exercising God's love. We walk and we do all for the cause of Christ. We advance the gospel. We preach the gospel. We abound in it. We, we desire to go on and give someone else an example of what Christ is. Folks, I have seen some things, and I'm going to spare you, but I've seen some of the most hateful evangelism that's just unfathomable. And it's one thing to call sin, sin. It's another thing to preach to people like you absolutely hate them and you despise them. I may despise the sins that are in this world. And I do. But I also realize lest I get too pride-filled, I am not above any of that sin that I hate, that I think that's never going to happen to me. You better be careful about what you think is never going to happen to you. I've watched pastors walk out on their families. I've watched it happen. I've watched evangelism that's saying, making everybody think, listen, you must have a level of perfection that we can't reach. Folks, be careful about how we... Give the gospel. Let the gospel be the gospel. It doesn't need our extra embellishment. It doesn't need my thoughts and my opinions. I just need to point them to Christ and say, He is the way, the truth, and the life. You, you, some evangelism, you'd think they're calling them to be a follower of them. Don't be a follower of a man unless he follows Christ. Paul said the exact same thing. You can follow me as I follow Christ, but the minute I stop following Christ, you stop following me. We're not here building ministry kingdoms. We're just simply pointing people to who Christ is and that gospel ought to go to every single person who can hear it. God is sovereign in salvation, but we're not to determine who's worthy of hearing it. Just walk in love. Walk in love and remember what you've been forgiven and that Christ loved you. I want to conclude our time this morning by singing the hymn on page number 80. I think it's an appropriate song for us to sing this morning and then we'll, we'll sing this hymn together and then we'll pray. How deep the Father's love for us on hymn, page number 80. Page number 80. So if you'll turn there, we'll sing this hymn. And as we sing it, I want you to think about Christ's love. Think about His forgiveness. And I trust this song will be an encouragement and a help to us.